I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending October 18th. In this episode, Arm Holdings designs circuitry that is the figurative heart of much of modern technology. The company holds a conference every year to talk about new products and new directions. We were there, and we'll report on what we learned. Also, the big data deluge, and how to make sense of it all. And we're reasonably sure that by the time people turn 16 years old, they're mature enough to begin operating a motor vehicle. We verify that by demanding that each young driver pass a test before getting their driver's license and being allowed out on the road. Shouldn't we consider doing something similar for autonomous vehicles to, you know, verify they're mature enough to drive by themselves? I often hear people say, we should just use a road test like a person would get to get their driver's license to prove self-driving cars are safe enough. That can help, but I don't think it's a complete solution. We'll get back to that in our third segment today. ARM designs the processing cores for everything from embedded systems to smartphones to supercomputers. Each year, the company holds a big shindig in Silicon Valley called ARM TechCon. Kevin Crewell, an analyst with Curious Research, was at ARM TechCon and wrote a story for EE Times about the event. The big news this year was about a new business model ARM is adopting, which might sound disappointing, but at this point in the company's history is far more significant than any products it might have announced. Here's Kevin with EE Times International Editor, Junko Yoshida. Hey Kevin, how are you? Good, good. How you doing, Junko? All right. So you were last week at ARM TechCon, is that right? That is correct. Very interesting. Even though there wasn't a lot of product announcements, like, you know, new cores and that. Right. We'll have to wait to 2020 to hear about the new cores and new instructions that are adding to the architecture. To me, the really big news was, for the first time ever, ARM is opening up the instruction set, any of its instruction sets, to custom instructions that are customer generated. And they're starting with the Cortex-M, uh, the M33 in particular, and that's the first core that will get these new capabilities of adding custom instructions. Eventually, uh, the Cortex-R, they're committed to adding an R, when those are cores for real-time controllers. And they sort of hinted that at some point in time, they may uh, you know, bring this to the Cortex-A family. And the Cortex-A family is what you find in smartphones and the high-end application processors. And yeah, right. And, and server processors. So this this could be the beginning of a, a really a new era uh, for ARM. That's interesting. You know, you probably know this answer, but I've always wondered that why ARM hasn't done this before. As you noted in your story, other companies like Tensilica, Arc, MIPS, you know, they've done similar things. So why did ARM wait until now? Well, that's a really good question. I believe the, the most immediate you know, thought is, oh, it's RISC-V. RISC-V has, uh, you know, become a, a major threat to ARM, and that's why they had to respond. Um, right. But it's, it's more than that. It's actually a representative of some serious, significant changes that's taken place in ARM over the last few years. It started off... Um, you know, with Simon Seeger becoming the CEO, uh, who's brought a, even though he's an arm, a long-term arm employee, he's he's got a different attitude. But then SoftBank bought the company, it changed the culture again because then 
we have an opportunity for ARM to think long term, not to think about quarter to quarter. Next quarter, and, right. Yeah. yeah. And also, um, SoftBank was pushing them to expand into uh, new segments. And then finally, Simon Singer uh, brought in a, a number of outside executives like Renee Haas from NVIDIA. Mm-hmm. And those people are also bringing a different culture to ARM. It's less about Cambridge and more about uh, the world and the customers. And a little more customer-centric approach, I think, is uh, something that's happened at ARM. That's true. Over the years, I mean, ARM always had, you know, really great people, executives and engineers, uh, pretty much all grew up within Cambridge, right? Well, within ARM, at least, right? Well, So yeah. this is a huge change. Yes, it is a, a major extension. And even Simon Seegers, um doesn't live in Cambridge. He lives in Silicon Valley. And that, I think, oh. is part of that change as well. It's a little more of a open, collaborative, customer-centric approach. And I think that's really part of what's happened with, you know, Simon being in charge is he's part of a little more Silicon Valley to ARM. You know, let's talk about a little bit of technology here, that if you are an engineer... Actually, I, I am an engineer by training. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You're the engineer. Okay, Mr. Engineer. Yes. You have been a long-time licensee of ARM, right? And you've seen uh, various other uh, processor cores come up now and then, but you stuck with ARM all these years. This new movement, as you described, as the uh, opening up the ISA and so forth, would that sway you to stay with ARM or will you continue to look around? Maybe there's a better deal. That's a complicated uh, question. It depends (laughs) on what you're trying to do. Um, You know, ARM has a a really well-established and very mature ecosystem tools, support, uh, all these things. You know, we know MIPS is undergoing uh, some challenges uh, under ownership of Wave Computer. Tensilica and Arc are, are well known in the markets that ARM is now trying to go back after, which is things like uh, modem technology and storage controllers. ARM has lost a fair amount of that business to Arc and Tensilica. And now you have RISC-V. RISC-V is a clean new instruction set out of Berkeley, a lot of enthusiasm, but it's still very immature in some areas. There's lots of areas where they're still in committee deciding on things, and that's not ready for prime time yet. So if you look at it from that point of view, you know maybe you'll be willing to uh, invest in a RISC-V to, try, to dabble. I mean, you look at some very significant yeah. uh, names that are on the RISC-V foundation, include uh, NXP, NVIDIA, Western Digital, Qualcomm, there's very significant heavy hitters there. And I think maybe they're there partly to pressure ARM to move a little more fast on this. But also, I think they're serious about actually using uh, these embedded RISC-V cores in some of their deeply embedded applications, like, you know, something well within the chip that wouldn't be uh, seen outside of the chip. And, and the advantages of RISC-V was also that you didn't have to pay a license fee. You could just start playing with it. So ARM has done a lot to address that. They have a number of programs that have allowed people to get started doing ARM cores without having to pay a license fee up front. And then now this adding uh, user-defined instructions uh, opens the, the door to another complaint. Um, I know a number of big vendors really wanted to add just a few instructions to improve either performance on controllers 
or security, and they felt frustrated they couldn't make those changes uh, because ARM wouldn't let them. And now that it's opening the door, and I think the big companies especially may reconsider their investment in risk five, but it makes the uh, industry more interesting when we have these kinds of uh, give and takes between the companies. You know, when everything looks like it's sort of rigid and static, somebody's going to come in and shake things up. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point. My last question, you know, from the arms engineers engineering point of view, that what is the downside of opening up this ISA? Well, arm, what's the downside? Arm is very afraid of fragmenting the instruction set. One of the tenets of using arm, one of the, the advantages was that it was structured. Uh, code always run from one arm core to another arm core with uh, custom instructions. You know, now one ARM core may have instructions that another ARM core doesn't. So, ah, okay. so now yeah. the, not all code will run on all ARM processors. What ARM wants the, the people doing custom instructions to do is limit the use of these new instructions to library functions so that you'd call a library and that particular library knows that this, this particular instruction is in this part and will accelerate that library function. Don't put it in your, your regular inline code. Uh, keep it to library functions where you can use a different library function depending on the core you're using. And that, that, that keeps it a little more uh, structured and it keeps it out of the, uh, completely fragmenting the uh, main part of uh, the ARM instruction set. Minimize, minimize that threat. Yes. Right. And, and that's, that's going to be a threat for RISC V as well. They have to worry about um, their uh, instruction set becoming... Uh, too fractured with people adding uh, these ex experimental or uh, uh, instructions. Very good. Very educational. Thanks, Kevin. You're most welcome. That was Kevin Crewell from Tyrius Research. I also attended ARM TechCon last week, and I and a handful of other journalists got to sit down with ARM CEO Simon Seegers. One of the other themes at the conference was security, specifically the security of embedded applications and the Internet of Things. Seegers was asked about that and was eager to promote ARM's Platform Security Architecture, or PSA. It's a framework for providing security that ARM licensees can take advantage of if they choose to. These are companies who are building the embedded systems that make up the Internet of Things. ARM, like many other companies in the high-tech industry, is trying to convince its customers to build in secure technologies and adopt practices that improve security. The thing is... Not every licensee is listening, Seeger said. I'd happily see people spend more time and effort on security, he added. But a lot of embedded systems are low-cost applications, and the challenge becomes, who's going to pay for security? In many consumer applications, people don't think they're at risk, so the lowest-cost solution wins, he explained. I think it's unsustainable, Seeger said, adding, it will change over time, that's the world we're in, and we're working with people to impress them that they have to take this more seriously. Now, what Seeger said has been said many times before by many other technologists. ARM, its partners, its competitors are all trying to make security easy to implement and as strong as possible. But if no one is buying it, we're all doomed to keep suffering hack after hack after hack after hack. Something to think about if you're building an IoT system or partnering with someone who's building an IoT system or deploying an IoT system.
As the electronics industry has matured, we've learned a whole new set of prefixes. Just about everyone is familiar with kilo, mega, and giga, or giga as some people say. Pronouncing it that way is technically acceptable, but not in my house. After that, we get tera, peta, exa, and lately we've been hearing zeta, as in zettabytes, indicating sextillions of bytes. We are now firmly in the zettabyte era of information. How to make sense of almost nonsensical floods of data. We use data visualization tools, charts, graphs, tables, and more to pull information out of the data. There's a new book on that subject called Data Science and Visual Computing, and our friend John Petty of John Petty Research recently reviewed it for us. You'll find the review on our website, but we asked John to join us this week to take a deeper dive into it. Hello, Brian. How are you doing today? I am doing all right, thank you. So we've got your review on the website, and where I'd like to start today is with the information. Where is all this information coming from, and are we going to be seeing more of it, or has it leveled off here? Well, uh, it's coming from everywhere, literally, and uh, you definitely are going to be able to expect more of it. We entered the era of big data, and it's not a specific time that we can you know, put on the calendar and say it was then. But about two years ago, maybe even three, uh, the exponential rate of data generation from all types of devices took off. The acceleration took off. And, and with it came this deluge of data that is being put on disks all over the world, the various servers and so forth. But with it also came a tremendous burden and a demand for how do we read this stuff? What do we do with all this information? Is there information in all this stuff? And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Think about credit cards. Every time anybody in the world uses a credit card, that creates a data file that's got at least 50 to 500 pieces of data in it that gets stored somewhere. Typically, it gets stored by the credit card company. It may also get stored by the uh, person that uh, the company is doing the uh, transaction, a bank or a grocery store or what have you, a gas station. So that data is stored and it has some value to it. Uh, the credit card companies analyze that data to see what's going on in particular neighborhoods. Uh, they analyze the data to see what kind of products are moving, et cetera, et cetera. And they sell that information, by the way. So that's, that's one example. But just think of the quantity of data just from credit card and ATM transactions. And then you can think of that as being kind of a consumer uh, side of, uh, of data generation. In the industrial side, you have um, uh, IoT. You guys have written about IoT a lot in the magazine. And IoT is basically the sensors that are on just about every machine that you can possibly think of. And when I say every machine, I mean things like your automobile, like airplanes, like factories, um, process control plants, et cetera, et cetera. There are sensors all over those things keeping track of what's going on, measuring temperatures and pressures and velocities and accelerations and you know every every parameter you can possibly think of, including time. 
So again, all that data is being generated and it's being sent to places and stored. And then in the scientific area, you have another uh, set of examples where simulations are being used to uh, create models of things. For example, we no longer uh, blow up atomic bombs in the atmosphere. We do it in computers. And when an atomic bomb uh, is simulated in the computer, it generates billions and billions of data points in billionths of a second. Um, and it's it, an extraordinary thing. <clears throat> it fills up a supercomputer in, in like 10 minutes. That's one example. The other example uh, that's common is in chemical modeling and uh, in particular protein modeling, where a protein is analyzed and or modified all in simulation to see how it's going to react with various uh, stimuli, stimuli from uh, other chemicals, from antibiotics, from uh, viruses, etc. And that also is an enormous enormous amount of data. I looked at a protein model once at the University of Illinois. It was a single protein, and it had 10 billion data points to it. These numbers are just staggering. It's hard, it's hard to appreciate. And then the other area of simulation um, has to do with um, crashing things. So the automobile companies almost no longer do physical crash testing. And they don't do it for a variety of reasons. A, because you can't test all of the models and configurations that a car builder may have. And B, as it turns out, you don't get as good a data. So they're building those simulations in the computer and crashing the cars and coming up with an enormous amount of data. So all of that stuff is being done. And uh, now we've got people who are trying to make sense of it. And so you've got teams of engineers, you've got teams of scientists, you have teams of what are called data engineers, people who work for credit card companies and law firms and people like that. And they're sorting through this stuff, which you can think of as being uh, humongous Excel files. And so there are just tables and tables and tables of data. And if you and I look at that, and any human looks at that, we're just going to go snow blind. We're going to go, my God, what the hell is this? And eventually you will, if you spend enough time and you have enough experience, you will actually be able to look at such a file and extract from it meaningful points. But the chances are that you're going to miss some too. In fact, you're probably going to miss a lot. So the idea is that we want to be able to see the differentials, things that change, because we're that type of, a, of an animal. We, we thrive and we survive on our ability to detect differences in whatever sensor that we're using. If it's, if it's our fingers, we want to detect differences in pressure and temperature. We don't want to burn ourselves or pinch our finger in a car door. If it's our eyes, we want to see if there's any movement anywhere, especially on the sides and the periphery in case something's trying to attack us, et cetera, et cetera. So we are, we are highly sensitized differential detectors. The converse of that is, if nothing's going on, our sensory systems shut down. My, my best example for this is to say, you know, hold your wife's hand and tell me when you no longer can feel it. And it's about maybe two, three seconds, and it's just not there. Uh, so being able to pick out the differentials is critical, and being able to see them in a sea of data is also critical and almost impossible. Now, the other aspect of it is that we, uh, we differential creatures, we are also visually oriented creatures. Everything that we do, every decision we make almost is based on a visual input, a visual stimulation of some type. So if you could take all that data that's being generated 
and somehow magically translate it into pictures. And for pictures, it can be a simple thing as a graph, a curve going up. Uh, but you can translate it into pictures, and you also can make the pictures smart. You can employ, you can employ AI techniques to help you find certain things. Uh, for example, AI is being used to help doctors find hairline fractures that they might not miss. So all that's going on, and uh, and it's going on right now as we're speaking. And any engineer who isn't aware of this, and I can't imagine such a person exists, but any engineer who's not, let's say, up to date or up to speed on this is going to be at a disadvantage. Uh, you're going to have to know how to do data visualization, uh, unless you're dealing with very, very small things that don't create a lot of data. That's your job. And, you know, maybe you're just a test engineer that's not doing anything really complicated. Uh, flip the switch, light went on, turn the switch back, light went off. Okay, good, ship. You know, if, if, it's, if your life is that simple, uh, <clears throat> then, you know, this, this podcast and this book is a waste of time for you. But I don't know anybody like that. Right. There's a lot of people out there who are – our readers are either designing circuitry, uh, some of them highly sophisticated, highly complex. Some of them are getting involved in AI. Also, a ton of information coming in, usually sifting data for an application, possibly an application in the IoT where you're getting an incredible amount of data in. Um, and these visualization techniques of this sort are critical for endeavors such as those, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And anybody that's done circuit design knows exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about simulations, because uh, all circuit design today is simulations. You, mm -hmm. don't, you don't actually even see a circuit anymore. What you do is you look at a, a screen, you push some buttons, you yell at somebody, and then <laughs> three months later, a piece of silicon appears on your desk and says, test it. Not like the old days when we had soldering irons and oscilloscopes. So here's um, uh, another aspect of uh, the visualization question, and that is um, the tools for creating these visualizations. Are there such tools available? Are there standardized tools in certain endeavors? It might be IC engineering, it might be financial analysis. Uh, how are those tools developing and, and uh, how are the principles of visualization applied to those tools? Yeah, and that is a good point. And it also takes us back to the book uh, because the book is uh, kind of not quite split in half. Actually, maybe it's more accurate, I would say it's split in thirds. Uh, the first third is a generalized overview of some of the things I've already mentioned about the consequences of, of all this data and the sources of it and, and how important it is to analyze it. The middle section are case examples of uh, things that people have done in the uh, process of developing analytical tools for dealing with this data. And then the last third of it, and you know, I'm probably a little bit off in the ratios, but the last part of it in any case, is a uh, where to and how to. And mm. lists of uh, tools that one can go out and, and buy and get up to speed quickly. And there's also a list of uh, uh, visualization centers around the world. For example, um, you may not be aware of this, but uh, in the United States, we have the National Visualization and Analytics Center. Hmm. There are similar places in the UK, in Canada, Brazil has one. Um, you know, almost every major uh, country has such a thing. And this is where there are teams, and I mean literally teams, uh, of, of scientists, very, very high-level scientists, trying to come up with clever algorithms to tease information out of data 
And it's a doubly tricky thing. It's not just a matter of, of finding the differentials, as I mentioned, because in any piece of data that you have, there's going to be some type of noise, some degree of noise. Mm-hmm. And as we get more and more sophisticated in our developments of, of technology and systems and designs, we want to be able to pick out important signals within the noise even. And so yeah. if you can just try and visualize a, a sine wave, let's say, as an example, and the sine wave has got, you know, some kind of noise riding on it. So it's a, a modulating the sine wave. And aperiodically, a spike will appear that's no larger than the noise band. And yet we need to find that. Right. And so the trick is to try and smooth out the randomness of the noise while at the same time picking out this asynchronous occurrence. Believe it or not, that can be done. Wow, that's incredible. So so this book is uh it's not just an interesting thing of side note. This is could be uh, uh critical for somebody running a fab for instance or perhaps uh creating a system that will monitor and evaluate uh some large IoT application. Yeah, I think anybody who picked up this book and looked at it, you know, other than just flipping pages and looking at the pictures, but actually, you know, read into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think any engineer, certainly any scientist uh, would read it and they would suddenly feel that they were reading about themselves. Mm. Anybody who is a practicing engineer or scientist today has this problem. And so the examples that are in the book may not be the exact specific thing that a given engineer is doing, but the correlations and the examples will be, you know, close enough. You'll go, oh, crap, I got that same problem. And, and as you mentioned, there's a, a, the book also includes a list of resources that are available to anyone who needs to solve one of these problems. Yep. Yep. It's got, you know, tables and lists and things like that. And, and, um, I mean, the the, uh, the list of um, of tools is just incredible. You'd be surprised, though, how many of the tools are coming out of universities uh, and and out of these uh, national labs that I mentioned to you. Well, I oh, think that's so. The point of that is, uh, Brian. Excuse yeah. me for interrupting. Go. The point of that is that this uh, these tools. Uh, are yours. They're free. We've already paid for them. They are paid with our taxes. So, uh, you know, this is not proprietary stuff. So any engineer who's looking for a toolkit can probably find one for free and, and then, you know, grow it from there. That's, that's the magic price, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hard to, hard to compete with zero. <laughs> John, thank you so much for coming back and talking with us again. Happy to do it. Be here anytime. That was John Petty of John Petty Research. John, an expert in computer graphics, just published a book of his own. It's called Ray Tracing, A Tool for All. We've got a link on the website. Oh, and just in case you're wondering, after Zettabytes comes Yottabytes. I, for one, cannot wait to drop that word into cocktail conversation. Yottabytes. We keep coming back to the subject of autonomous vehicles because the problem of making a self-driving vehicle safe has so many aspects to it. One of those facets is figuring out how to certify that a driver is competent. We have certain expectations from a human driver. How do we figure out if a self-driving vehicle is competent? Phil Koopman is the Chief Technical Officer of Edge Case Research and a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. 
He's one of the key authors of a standard called UL4600 that helps manufacturers of almost any autonomous system evaluate if they've done adequate safety testing. Here's Koopman on a proposal to determine if a robocar is ready to hit the roads on its own. I often hear people say, we should just use a road test like a person would get to get their driver's license to prove self-driving cars are safe enough. That can help, but I don't think it's a complete solution. In my mind, a driving test has three pieces. The first is the written test. You have to know all the rules of the road. The second piece is the driving skills test, and that's what people tend to concentrate on. A driving skill test can certainly make sure that you have proficiency at basic maneuvers. I mean, it's necessary, but it's not everything you need. The most important part is actually the third part, which is you have to prove you're a 16-year-old human being or whatever the age is in your jurisdiction. I mean, that's a test too. And this is tricky because for machine learning-based systems, they don't have what's called general intelligence. They don't have common sense. And so being able to prove you have the maturity to deal with unusual situations, things you're not expecting, is really the hard part here. All right. So what I think I just heard Phil telling us is that with humans, there's some minimum level of maturity that we can expect at a certain point, the age of 16. And then we need to test to make sure that they actually do have, we give these kids a driver's tests. But with a computer, we can't do that. With a computer, um, we can't assume some base level of, of maturity, some base level of capability. So we need two things, if I'm understanding it correctly. Mm-hmm. One is the ability to demonstrate this some base level of capability. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is some assurance that we're when we test the computer, mm-hmm. we're testing what we think we're testing. Right. I think right? your your second one is a good one. I think that yeah. it, because autonomous vehicle today, um, I mean, also tomorrow, uh, is using machine learning, as far as we know, AI today doesn't have a general AI. In other words, that machine learning doesn't have any common sense, so to speak, right? right? So you can't really teach machine how, you know, the common sense. So really the biggest challenge here is that when we're talking about autonomous vehicle, A, it's neither a human, B, mm-hmm. nor a 16 years old. So that's the way, that's a big gap we have to fill in before let these robocars, you know, roam around the public street like the street that we drive right 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 now let's let's go back to one of the 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 examples from your story because it illustrates the difference between a human and a car a human tends to be able to a a 16 year old or or thereabouts we expect a 16 year old human to have a certain level of of uh, discernment based on their experience. So when a human sees a ball bounce into the street, a human will probably think, oh, somebody was playing with that and they might go to retrieve it. Yep. There's probably some kid who's about to jump into a street. Right. When an autonomous vehicle sees a ball, it's like, oh, it's a round object and I shouldn't hit it. But it doesn't anticipate that there might be some kid attached to it, right? Or it's a round thing so I can just hit it, you know? (laughs) Right. It bounces. Yeah, it should be yeah, able to handle yeah, it yeah. if I hit it at 30 miles an hour, right? Yeah. 
so yeah, prediction is the it's really the hardest thing for AI. I was told. You know, you right. can you can actually perceive something. Whether it's an object that we shouldn't hit or should we could hit, but it's really the biggest thing is that what is going to happen next. That's right. the prediction. That's the hard part. And that's the kind of the thing that a human should be able to do when when you're in a driver's test. You uh, you're checking to see whether that kid can anticipate, understands the rules of the road, right? Um, and that kid can demonstrate it. Yeah. Um, when you do that, and you can give them a license, right? Right. It's, this is something that uh, some approval that says yes, you've you've demonstrated the minimum level. But with an autonomous vehicle, it might be able to demonstrate some minimum level of awareness of the ability to drive. Yeah. Is there a standard? We've been talking about UL forty six hundred. Does UL forty six hundred give you any framework for figuring out whether you could give an AV a license? Well, um, here's the thing. UL 4600 is really uh, very different from normal uh, Mm -hmm. safety standards. Normal safety standards usually tells you that you follow, you know, I don't know, uh, you follow A, B, C, therefore your car is safe. I mean, that's a normal, logical way of thinking, right? Uh But uh, what UL 4600 asks as uh, Phil Koopman tells you, is that have you done enough of <laughs> safety? In other words, it doesn't tell you how to do it. It doesn't tell you what needs to be done, but it does tell you, have you done enough? In other words, they are asking the developers of autonomous vehicles to think of all the things that could happen to your cars. And mm-hmm. we don't care how you did it, but tell us your strategy. How did you Design your system so your system can reasonably, you know, you, your system can find a way to mitigate or the, um, the minimize the risk, right? So what they're asking for is reasonable safety. To figure out how to get your, get your autonomous vehicle to be at least equivalent to a 16-year-old kid. Right. Right. So that's so that's the gap that Koopman talks about. That's that's kind of his point of bringing up a sixteen-year-old. Yeah. Is, you know, you need some criteria by which you can license an autonomous vehicle as a reasonable driver, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you have kids, right? You have daughters, and then yeah. uh, you always ask your daughters that did you think of that when something really <laughs> bad happens? <laughs> and essentially, UL forty six hundred is asking AV designers. Have you thought of that? Did you think of that? And they could say, yeah, we thought of that. And here's how we did it. Or here's how we do it. Right? Right. Yeah. So the next, there, there is an additional step after UL 4600 is what I'm hearing. There's that step where you you uh, need some sort of test, some way of discerning that uh the AV that you produce by conforming to uh, the expectations of UL 4600 the AV you produce is doing what you're expecting. Is that right? Actually, 4600 is not a road test. So it doesn't give you a test, but it does ask you all the questions if you thought about all these right. unexpected things. And, it, 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 you know, and then they, they wouldn't accept your answer. Oh, yeah, we thought about it. No, that's not good enough. You have <laughs> to prove what you did with evidence. 
you know, evidence mm. backed by rigorous engineering. That's what he's asking. What, what, that's what UL 4600 is asking. So it's part of the process that in designing, you know, what you need to think about in advance. For example, they don't tell you that whether you should use LiDAR, you shouldn't use uh, this sensing technology, or you should use how many of cameras. They don't specify any of those things. They don't mm-hmm. care. But as you, long as the results. Exactly. And you need to prove, you know, we have done this much testing and this testing shows, you know, gives you the evidence, this is reasonable, you know, safe by using mm-hmm. this sensor technology and that sensor technology, a combination of the three or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. So do we have do we have anything that's like analogous to a department of motor vehicles? Who's going to take a look at this, uh, you know, <laughs> whether it's a Beamer or Volkswagen or Ford or, or Prion or whatever, and says, uh, okay, go, uh, you know, parallel park here. Now, you know, <laughs> drive, <laughs> take it out of the highway. Do we have a Department of Motor Vehicles yet? Mm, no, I think we're far from it. We're really yeah. far from it, unfortunately. I mean, we have a long way to go, right? Yeah. Well, next thing to do, right? Yeah. It's kind of a downer, but it's it's a lot of challenge, and I think that's why that uh, people are excited about autonomous vehicle in one way or the other because uh, there's so much to do, right? And uh, right. I just love the idea of um, engineers asking themselves uh, if they thought enough about the safety. So, are you a pretty good driver? No, I'm terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Junko's blog on the subject. When Your Teenage Robot Can Drive is on the website. Okay, Sherman, are you ready to get back into the Wayback Machine? On October 15th in 1878, Thomas Edison and a group of investors formed the Edison Electric Light Company. This was the Edison operation that vastly improved light bulbs by devising long-lasting filaments. You knew Edison didn't actually invent light bulb, right? It was also where Edison did pioneering work on his DC system of electrification. By 1890, the Edison Electric Light Company was merged with other Edison companies to form the Edison General Electric Company. Two years after that, Edison General Electric merged with Thomson Houston Electric to form General Electric. On October 11, 1958, a new U.S. government agency called NASA conducted the first launch of a spacecraft that was successful sort of. Pioneer 1 was supposed to go to the moon, but it never got anywhere near there. A programming error led to an unexpected trajectory that kept Pioneer 1 aloft for only 43 hours before it fell back into the Earth's atmosphere. On October 18, 1985, Nintendo introduced the NES game system at the FAO Schwartz Toy Store in Manhattan. That was also the day that Mario first got his own game, after co-starring in Donkey Kong. Super Mario Bros. is considered the very first side-scrolling game ever. It was the first title in the Mario series that's still going strong nearly 35 years later. That's your weekly briefing for the week ending October 18th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and video. Check in with us next Friday for a new edition of EE Times On Air. 
I'm Brian Santo. 